It's the Pete Callender Show. With more than 20 years as a reporter and radio host in North Carolina, Pete Callender is helping solve the world's problems one podcast at a time. Because he's a giver. And now, here's Pete. What's going on? Welcome to the show. Thanks so much for listening. I appreciate it. It is September 23rd. Uh, the show is made possible by fantastic people, and I'm not just saying that because they're patrons of the show, um, but it does raise their fantastic quotient, just for the record. Uh, but people like Phil and Paul, Terrence, Teresa, Chad, Alan, Joseph, Julie and Shelley and Matthew, Daniel and Mary, NC and Greg, I appreciate uh, all of the support. Couldn't do the show without you. You can become a patron as well, by the way, going to the com and clicking the link that's there. You can also click the link that is in the description of this here podcast. The show is also made possible by sponsors such as Rowena Patton and her all-star powerhouse team. Um, She's the only real estate agent I have ever endorsed, and uh, there's a reason. She outsells 99% of the realtors in the state of North Carolina. Christy and I are using her and her all-star powerhouse team to buy our house right now, and uh, I could not recommend her highly enough. Her phone number is 828-333-4483. She will get your house sold quickly and for more money, especially now. Look, there are people trying to move out of cities across the state and across the nation, and they want to come here. So if you are thinking about selling, uh, the time might be perfect for you to do so. Give her a call and she will give you some advice about uh, you know, what your house could command. And this is one of the things too, people uh, who come here from other areas, they think, oh, we'll get some comps of the neighborhood. See, in the mountains, that doesn't always work because... In the mountains, you could have a house that's worth, you know, a million dollars, and then right down the road in your quote neighborhood is a house that's worth, you know, a hundred fifty thousand. You just don't ever, you don't ever know. So you gotta, you gotta get somebody who knows the area, buying or selling. Call Rowena Patton three 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 forty four eighty three mountainhomehunt.com, and then start packing. All right, so we've all known for a long time how important the courts are, uh, increasingly so. In fact, I talked about this earlier in the week, the uh, apoplexy over uh, the filling of the seat by Ruth Bader Ginsburg, to me, is indicative uh, of, of two things, really. Number one is uh, how much the uh, the political left relies on the courts to legislate for them in order to, you know, to govern when they, when they don't have the ability to legislate via the traditional mechanism of the legislative branch, they use the courts to do so. And that's why maintaining their power on the courts is so important. Uh, But also, and this is really the biggest takeaway for me, and I I wish more people would agree with this, which is that if if a single black-robed lawyer's death means this much, then maybe this isn't a good system. Maybe we have given too much power to that court that a single person's death somehow now is going to be the determinant of, you know, literally life and death for so many people, right? When people are driven to uh, to the levels of, of outrage and anger and sadness and depression that we're seeing right now, maybe uh, this isn't the best way to be governing ourselves. Maybe the legislature needs to take some of this power back, you know, from the judicial branch. I know, I know, I'm an optimist. I'm a dreamer. (laughs) So, North Carolina. We've been sued so many times, I can't even keep track of all of the different lawsuits. And, like, I think somewhere, I think it's around 70 or 80% of them have all been filed by Mark Elias. 
I am. <laughs> I kid, but not really. This is the guy, by the way, who works for the law firm uh, that was connected to the the Steele dossier. Yeah, they were the the cutout for that. Anyway, I digress. The State Board of Elections. Uh, North Carolina State Board of Elections, according to Travis Fain's story, WRAL, the BOE announced a proposed legal settlement yesterday that may give the Postal Service more time to deliver absentee ballots and make it easier for voters to correct ballot mistakes. This is, once again, a pretty good example of how a particular narrative gets codified, gets gets calcified, right? This becomes the template right out of the gate. You've got this framing of this uh, of this consent agreement, and the framing is that it's going to give the post office more time to deliver ballots and that it's going to give voters uh, make it easier for them to correct any mistakes that they may make. And that those things may very well be true in and of themselves. But is that really the most newsworthy part of this agreement? Because when you look at the agreement and you look at what it actually calls for and allows for. This raises some really serious concerns about how the Board of Elections just did an end run around the legislature and and us, right? Because the legislature represents us. I hear Democrats scoffing at that right now. Only through gerrymandering. So the court still has to sign off on this settlement, he writes, Travis Fain writes, for the charges, or sorry, the changes to take effect. Uh, and leadership in the Republican-controlled General Assembly indicated that they will fight the proposal. And God, I hope they do. They they have to. Because what this agreement does is opens the door for a statewide ballot harvesting operation. It makes it easier for that to occur. I'm not saying it would be organized at the state level, um, although I guess it could. Uh, but you don't need a statewide level of organization because you've got all these local groups that have already been doing it. For years, they've been doing this stuff. And don't tell me that they haven't. I know they have. Heck, you guys just busted one of them down in the 9th District, uh, and we had to do a whole new election over it. Well, but he was a Republican. I don't care what party it is. Right? I don't care. Unless you're going to say, you know what? Ballot harvesting is now okay. Well, let's just go ahead and open the doors. Yesterday, I did um, a, I did a, a segment of the program on the New York Post a story where they interviewed a ballot harvester, a guy who is a Bernie Sanders guy. He was unnamed, of course, because he didn't want to go to jail. Uh, but the New York Post did this huge expose based on this guy. And so he's been doing it for, I think he said, like 20 years. He's affected local and county and state races in New Jersey for years. He's he, And he says, I got no dog in this fight anymore because I'm a Bernie bro, and so I don't care about who wins the election. So he just tells the New York Post all the techniques that they used. And if you think this isn't occurring in North Carolina and hasn't been occurring, you're kidding yourself. And now these rules that Elias sued, Mark Elias, the Democrat who, you know, he's a Democratic lawyer, he sued to get these rules adopted. And... The consent agreement, what this means is that he's suing the Board of Elections and the elections director, Karen Brinson Bell, she says, uh, well, why don't we enter into an agreement and uh, this will avoid, this will get the, this will basically settle the case. It'll avoid the lawsuit. It ends the litigation. And she basically agrees to everything he demands because Karen Brinson Bell is a partisan appointee by Governor Cooper. The proposed settlement is with the North Carolina Alliance for Retired Americans, which sued over several of the state's absentee ballot protocols. Mark Elias, 
arguably the top Democratic elections attorney in the country, represented the group. The state board voted unanimously last week to settle this and several other outstanding lawsuits on state election rules delegating the details to Brinson Bell. What? That decision was made after a closed-door discussion with all five members present. David Black, one of the two Republicans on the board, said he understands that a lot of folks aren't happy with this settlement, but he says, quote, we're not exactly in a judicial world now that leans towards the right. What's he saying? He says, we need to settle this because if it just goes on, it's just going to be more lawsuits and the courts are controlled, the North Carolina Supreme Court at least, is controlled by the Democrats, and so we're going to lose anyway, so we might as well just do this. Which, that guy needs to be removed, because if you're not interested in protecting the election system, what the hell are you doing on that board of elections? My God. Like, I'm sorry that you got appointed and accept the, accepted the appointment, and now you got to put in a lot of hours because a lot of people are trying to steal elections. I'm sorry that this is happening to you. Um, but then you need to walk away from this post. Seriously. Um, he says there is he does say there's a little give and take in this agreement, in this settlement. Not aware of any getting that Republicans <laughs> got out of that, um, except the fact that what the litigation ends and you don't have to worry about going to so many closed door meetings and having so many uh, meetings with your legal staff, I guess. I don't know. An attempt to reach the other Republican member, Ken Raymond, was not successful. Again, this is WRAL story by Travis Fain. Get this. Under the proposal, voters would still need a witness to sign their ballot envelope. But if the witness fails to sign or makes a mistake, the voter would not have to cast a new ballot. Instead, the voter could fill out an affidavit and the original ballot would count. What the bleep, folks? Are you kidding me? So let's walk through this procedure real quick. You get an absentee ballot sent to you in the mail that you've requested. Or maybe somebody requested it for you. Maybe they helped you out. They showed up at your door and they said, Hey, uh, Mr. Pete, would you need some help? Because I know you're old and decrepit. Uh, do you need some help with this uh, ballot request? Uh, so I can send this request in for you. And so, well, sure, I would appreciate that. And so then they, they send it in. Now the ballot comes and lo and behold back at the door is the helpful voter person they're going to help that's that's what they were referred to down in the north carolina ninth district when they were harvesting ballots down there oh you know the voting people yeah they just show up every election the voting people do at your door helping you vote okay so the voting people show back up and now you got your ballot you fill it out and they you know what i don't want to sign this as a witness i'm not going to sign this but if the witness fails or makes a mistake then the voter would not have to cast a new ballot. This is according to the, the story here, right? This is according to the settlement under this proposal. So I fill it out. You don't sign it. You then, I don't know, do something with the ballot? Don't know. Let's say you do sign it, then you throw my ballot away, stick it in the envelope, and then you turn that in. Now there's no signature on the ballot. So now what happens? So now I get alerted, hey, your ballot wasn't uh, submitted properly, so... um. I don't have to start a whole new ballot. I could just fill out an affidavit. I can just fill out an affidavit and the original ballot counts. Do you see the problem here? Everybody should see the problem here. Am I getting my ballot back? Am I going to get to look it over to make sure that nobody tampered with it, nobody messed with it? 
Or what if there's just a whole bunch of people that don't even exist and they all send it in and there's no witness signatures? It's already now WRAL points out, Travis Fain points out that this is already the procedure if a voter fails to sign his or her own ballot. And the most common problem by far with ballots that have already been returned for this election is with the witness section. So you're already having problems with people not being able to get a witness to their uh, to their ballot signing, to their ballot casting. That's the biggest problem happening right now with the absentee ballots, he says. But this is already the procedure if they don't sign their own ballot. We're not talking about signing your own ballot. We're talking about getting a witness to make sure that you are actually a human being and you are who you say you are. And you fill this ballot out not under any kind of duress. Some statements here now from the Republican leadership. This is from um, House Speaker Tim Moore. He says, these actions are utterly lawless, and we will be reviewing them to assess all of our legal options. Uh, that's why I said this is why Democrats need the courts to govern. Think, think about this. This, like, this is going to go to the courts, and we're going to rely on some lawyers in robes who are Democrats to tell us that, what, the Democrats' rules here aren't legit? The unelected, this is uh, Senator Phil Berger now. The unelected North Carolina Board of Elections colluded with the opposing side of a lawsuit, and he puts opposing side in quotes, <laughs> um, which was funded by national Democrats, and they agreed to a consent order that violates North Carolina election laws. The maneuver, if approved by a Democratic judge, will undo legislation passed by a near-unanimous General Assembly and signed into law by the governor. The collusive arrangement permits anonymous absentee ballot drop boxes and it subverts requirements for witnesses to be identified on absentee ballots. These rules were put in place in response to large-scale absentee ballot fraud that caused elections officials to throw out the results of the 2012 congressional race. Um, he says, can you imagine the reaction if President Trump and Attorney General William Barr went into a back room and rewrote election laws weeks before an election? He says, I cannot overstate how unethical this collusive behavior is. The Board of Elections, which is controlled by Governor Cooper and acting through its lawyer, Democratic Attorney General Josh Stein, went around the legislature and agreed with Democratic plaintiffs to undo basic election laws passed to prevent a repeat of actual absentee ballot fraud. If approved, this action shatters confidence in the Board of Elections' intent to fairly conduct this election. We knew they would play around the margins uh, uh, to give Democrats an edge, he says, but this is a full frontal assault on election integrity laws passed after widespread absentee fraud undid the results of the 2018 congressional election. He goes on to say that this settlement would permit anonymous outdoor absentee ballot drop boxes it eliminates witness requirements for absentee ballots and it extends the period of time in which an absentee ballot can be received by the board so election night is not going to be the final election night we're going to have to wait nine days state law requires absentee ballots to be received no later than Three days after the election. This is the canvas period. So you get three days. So they got the postmarked ballot. It has to be before the election day uh, and or the or by election day. And then it comes within three days. Right. That's it. Now they're extending it out to nine days. To nine days. 
the, this consent order rewrites state law to give nine days. So what happens in those nine days? Now you've got a week. Now you have a whole week to find a bunch of ballots in trunks of cars. Because that's always where they hit. They're, they're, they're always misplaced, sorry. They always seem to be misplaced in the trunks of cars. Have you ever noticed that? <laughs> Guys, if, like, if you don't want Republicans making these arguments that, that your actions undermine the legitimacy of the outcome of an election, then stop doing things that make it easy to argue that you're undermining the legitimacy of the outcome of elections, right? Come on, guys. You know how important your website is to your business? You probably already know that. Um, but you probably don't know really how to how to build a website, how to design a website so it's user-friendly, it's intuitive, people find what they need easily, right? And they have a good experience on your website. My friend Schaefer Smith at Schaefer Smith Design, he does. Great design can solve a lot of problems that a lot of websites have. Professional services, corporate, small businesses, entrepreneurs, Schaefer Smith can help you with graphics, photos, an online store, search engine optimization, website maintenance and security. He does logos. He did my logo. Go to SchaeferSmith.com and get the most out of your website. That's SchaeferSmith.com. Joining me now is the elections policy analyst from the Civitas Institute, Dr. Andy Jackson. Welcome back to the show. Andy, how are you? I'm doing great. How are you doing? I am doing well. So you've got a post up at nccivitas.org, and you go through some of the background uh, as to how we kind of got here that should have led us all to, um, to to recognize that this is what Karen Brinson-Bell has been trying to do, the executive director of the Board of Elections. Right? Th- these things, these measures, she's been trying to see these things implemented for quite a while. You trace it back to what her first action was last spring when she went to the General Assembly with these items. Yeah, yes, she did. And this was uh, her first and second memos related to some of the coronavirus uh, issues that were taking place with elections. Some of it is fairly innocuous, like how to handle budget budget issues and that sort of thing. But among other things, she had sought to either eliminate or at a minimum uh, reduced the absentee ballot, ballot witness requirement. Um, and also she sought to remove restrictions uh, about uh, protecting people in assisted living facilities. Uh, right now, there are restrictions to protect them from manipulation by employees or owners of those facilities. She had sought to uh, get rid of those, at least for this election. Um, and so with the, those memos, she was starting her pathway to trying to get rid of some of these protections that we have uh, for absentee voting. So the General Assembly rejected this, right? They said, uh, no, we're not going to do these things. She reject, they rejected most of her requests regarding absentee ballots. They did agree to reduce the witness requirement from two, which is what it normally is, down to one. Uh, but most of those things that she had wanted on the absentee ballot front, she did not get. Okay, so then chapter two. She then uh, tries to do this, what, unilaterally? Well, she uh, what she tries to do, uh, along with her Board of Elections staff, is try to... If they can't change the law, perhaps they can change the regulations uh, that come from that law. So she sought to expand her emergency powers uh, uh, for uh, rulemaking. They could do things such as um, changing the hours for early voting uh, and other such things. And she and she sought to do that through the Rules Review Commission, which is a commission we have set up in North Carolina uh, to make sure that 
regulatory agencies, when they make rules, they're actually in compliance with the law. And the Rules Review Commission was having none of that. Uh, one of the commissioners said that this was called it a gross in misunderstanding of what the procedure is. And they were concerned that this was an end round around the General Assembly. And so she had tried to get through those emergency rule changes, which she couldn't get through through legislation. And again, she was frustrated in the effort. And then she, uh, you write in your piece, she tries to do it through administrative fiat, issuing a memo to the county boards of elections. Yeah, and these are a couple of things. So here's the issue there. Uh, state law is often written broadly um, and sometimes doesn't say what the penalties are, punishments are, and that sort of thing, and leaves the details up uh, to agencies. So she kind of took that ball and ran with it. For example, it is illegal in North Carolina for somebody other than a near relative to deliver your ballot, either the voter or the near relative. You know, it has to They have to mail it or deliver it. Uh, in this memo, she acknowledges that, yes, it's, though they are illegal, but she tells state boards that just because a ballot is transmitted illegally, that that is not cause to reject the ballot. I mean, this would have been great news uh, for McCray Dallas. Right. Convicted, <laughs> because I mean, he, he wouldn't have had to send people out to mailboxes all over the county to mail those in. He could have just had folks come in uh, with a with a box of ballots drop them off, and if they refuse to sign on the login, which is required um, under North Carolina law, then they would still get the ballots accepted, no questions asked. Right, This and this is a safety measure that's in place, so this way you don't have somebody show up with a thousand ballots and just drop them off. They, they You have to sign, right, a, as you said, a log. you got to sign that you're dropping these things off, so this way they'll know if you are, in fact, actually running a ballot harvesting operation, right? They've, they've got some link back. They've got some investigative trail to follow. And what, she's, what she was recommending is, yeah, don't worry about that. Indeed. Now, she, there's, two things we have, there's two things that we have that uh, we can use to verify voters. Uh, one of those is the witness requirement, and one of those is signature matching or signature verification. And in that very same memo, she instructed all the counties not to do any signature verification. So that was, that was eliminated uh, as a tool of making sure of protecting absentee ballots. And then with this other part of the memo, functionally, it makes it so that folks can harvest ballots and drop them off and run off. So this is eliminating both means of uh, verifying the voters. Is there a rational, non-nefarious explanation for this that you're aware of? I'm trying to think, like, what is the what's the what's the cover story here for why they why they would do this, why they would recommend this? Well, I think, the, I mean, if I, were, if I was trying to put as much lipstick as possible on this pig, I would say that what they're trying to do is make sure that ballots, you know, everybody's vote counts. I mean, that's the mantra. Mm -hmm. uh, so the, and the idea is that, okay, maybe somebody just made an honest mistake and they were distracted. They were talking to their kids and they dropped off the box of ballots or whatnot. Um, so... I think the basic idea, this, this goes in with that whole every vote should count mantra, and they are eliminating 
you know, all, just about any means of security. Right, but I, I can believe ballot. and I can agree that every vote should count if the vote is a legitimate vote, right? I mean, it, it just because I believe every vote should count should not be uh, a license to to stuff ballot boxes. I don't understand how one flows from the other there. I know yeah. I'm asking you to argue something that yeah, you might I, not agree with. <laughs> so right. just The logic so, escapes me. Yeah, so it is. And, and so this opens up these avenues. Um, and so we, we know from this, uh, you know, what her mindset is on election integrity issues, um, that she doesn't really care um, as far as she is not compelled to do by the law uh, to worry about, you know, the possibility of absentee ballot fraud. Um, now, she can the reason she can get away with this is that even though the state law is clear that only the voter or the near relative can um, transmit the ballot to the Board of Elections, it doesn't specify, you know, any penalty or any, you know, requirement that it has to be cured or fixed in some way. So that she took that to say, well, even though it's illegal, it's acceptable. Right, because there's no penalty spelled out. Right. And so clearly this is something that the General Assembly is going to have to fix. Uh, sometimes you just you, you want to give some flexibility, you know, to bureaucrats sometimes uh, because you don't you can't account for all situations. But I think we're seeing that we've got a, a bit of a runaway executive director at the State Board of Elections. And so the General Assembly is really going to have to take a look at these laws. Uh, regarding elections and be a lot more specific so that there's not so much wiggle room. Yeah. For folks who uh, may not recall, Karen Brinson Bell was put in place when uh, the Board of Elections fired Kim Strack, right? Uh, the mm -hmm. the appointee from Pat McCrory, but she was a longtime um, investigator for the Board of Elections. And generally speaking, I'm not aware of anybody that had any problems with her uh, as an elections official, bipartisan uh, respect, I thought. Um, and then she got uh, she got released because she uh, was appointed by a Republican and her husband was a lawyer for Republicans. And so she got uh, she got cut. And then Brinson Bell is put in place. Brinson Bell was a protege of Gary Bartlett, who was Indeed. the elections director for like a million years here. And this is and so this is what I always try to tell people who weren't around prior to 2010, before Republicans, you know, started winning state control. This was sort of par for the course. These kinds of things happened with regularity in state government. Um, and so this is not surprising to me. It is kind of surprising just sort of the blatancy of it or blatantness, blatant blatancy. I don't know. That might be an Internet term, but uh, <laughs> it's just right out in the open. And uh, they just keep going back and keep going back and keep going back. And uh, now she's entered into this consent agreement or negotiated this consent agreement with Mark Elias, who is this, you know, hotshot Democrat attorney, he sues North Carolina uh, with regularity as well. And uh, he was against all of the absentee ballot harvesting going on down in the ninth district in McRae, Dallas, as you mentioned, but now he's apparently for the ballot harvesting to make it easier to do, I guess, because there's some, uh, there's an advantage to be seen there. Why would the board of elections give Brinson bell the, uh, the authority to negotiate this settlement deal along with all of the other, uh, litigants that are suing over very similar items? Why would they put her in charge of all of this? Particularly, I'm thinking the two Republicans on the, the board of elections. 
Right. For the for the uh, majority Democrats and certainly Damon Sarcosta, who is their uh, the chair of the Board of Elections, they are Democratic political appointees. So it makes perfect sense for them. I am personally at a loss uh, as to what is going on with the two Republican members. Um, either they were not aware of this history with Brinson Bell, which I would find incredible, um, or they're just worn out. I mean, there's so many lawsuits going on. And, and I should point out that they've also empowered her to negotiate settlements for other lawsuits that are going on. So we might see some more uh, potential consent agreements uh, in the next week or two along the same lines. But yeah, I mean, I, I can't speak for them. It's really perplexing why they would do it. And the only explanation I could have is that they're, they've just been worn out. Aren't they appointed by the governor as well? They are appointed by the governor. Now, they do come from a list that is suggested to them from the General Assembly uh, to the governor. So the governor picks from among like three possible appointees for each position. Um, but yeah, they're appointed by the governor. But you would think that the General Assembly would make sure that you get Republicans in there that are going to have you know some backbone, that are going to have some pushback on stuff like this. Yeah. Um, so where does it go from here? Well, it's it's hard to say. The um, the judge in charge of this case was the same one that has said that the General Assembly, as currently constituted, is not legitimate and couldn't <laughs> propose uh, the constitutional amendments that voters uh, approved. So I would imagine that Judge Collins is going to uh, approve this. Uh, if he does, we're probably going to see another lawsuit um, because Tim Moore and Phil Berger, who are the heads uh, of the Senate and the House, are also intervening defendants because they didn't trust that the board of elections was actually going to defend itself, which turns out to be the case. Mm -hmm. So they're, they've already started speaking out against this and we might end up having a lawsuit against the lawsuit. Nice. Nice. Yeah. Cause so why not? I right. don't, yeah, I don't <laughs> expect this to end with this consent agreement. All right. And so, and this, and depending on if they do sue and when that happens, I, I'm assuming this would block or they could they could seek a restraining order to prevent this from being implemented prior to the November election, which I mean, I say that prior to the election, but it's actually already underway. We're, we're voting underway. right now. Yeah. Yes, we are. We are. We are changing rules in an election that's already happening. Uh, so it's really interesting that way. Yeah. Uh, Andy Jackson, the elections policy analyst for Civitas. You can read his entire write-up at ncivitas.org. Andy, always a uh, pleasure talking with you. Thanks so much for spending some time with us. Uh, great talking to you. Thanks. All right. I know keeping track of all of this, keeping up to speed on all of this stuff, it can be exhausting, which is why you need a really good mattress. Go to Mattress Man. Four locations in Asheville, Arden, and Hendersonville. It's where Christy and I got our mattress. It's a king-size memory foam. We love it. And uh, you, look, if you don't want a memory foam, you don't like them for whatever reasons, that's fine. Mattress Man's got all sorts of other mattresses as well. You know, your traditional inner spring mattresses, pocketed springs, uh, pillow top mattresses, natural latex mattresses. Um, he has the, the hotel foam as well. So whatever kind of mattress you're looking for, and by the way, the sleep consultants can help you determine the right mattress for how you sleep. Because if you sleep on your back, you may require a better or a different mattress uh, that's better for your sleeping style than someone else who sleeps on their side or their stomach, right? Th those things matter. The position in which you sleep matters to which mattress 
best accommodates you. And the sleep consultants can help you pick the right one for you. And they've got great deals. The triple zero deal going on now, zero money down, 0% APR for up to 24 months and zero payments for 90 days. So it's like almost free, basically, right? Triple zero, zero down, zero interest, and zero payments. Also, you can pick up a 10-inch queen-size gel memory foam mattress, uh, and that is just $3.99. They have five-star local delivery service, a 120-day comfort guarantee, and they deliver uh, nationwide. They will ship it nationwide. They have a free box spring with the purchase of Biltmore mattresses. These are made by Restonic uh, out of Fayetteville, and they are in the Biltmore Hotel and Inn. You can get a free box spring when you buy one of those. You can pick up an adjustable base for free with the purchase of select mattresses. Go to mattressmanstores.com, check out all the inventory, mattressmanstores.com, and experience the difference at Mattressman. Buy local and sleep better. All right, related to the election uh, issue here and the way this election is going to be conducted, because by the way, the stakes could not be higher. Okay, what this is all about is redistricting. This is about Democrats trying to gain control of as many legislatures as possible so they can gerrymander. Oh, I'm sorry, sorry. Draw fair maps. They will totally draw the fair maps. That's why this was kind of surprising uh, to see this from Future Now. This is an affiliated group with the Democrats. Um, and they put they put out a state-by-state analysis. They did a big PowerPoint presentation. And oops, one of the slides leaked out. Future Now. State of States. This was from July. Here's what they say about North Carolina. North Carolina will gain a seat after reapportionment, and this map projects what would happen if the new 14th district is created to add a plurality minority seat to the southeastern part of the state while minimizing changes across the rest of the map. Okay, so North Carolina has 13 districts right now, congressional districts, and with the new census being done, the thought here is that we're going to pick up a 14th seat. And it's likely going to be, uh, they, they're they are foreseeing this as a district that could be created down east. Carve up, because if you know, like the district that's currently represented by Dr. Greg Murphy, it's like basically the whole coastline, right? So, uh, so this would split that up. So they have a map. Future Now has a map for Democrats to utilize. It would create seven safe Republican seats and seven mostly safe Democratic seats. The new 14th district only backed Hillary by about 5%, but historically votes uh, far more Democratic and would be less than 50% white. The only Republican seat here worth a run would be the 9th district, and that's only if the Charlotte suburbs get more Democrat in the near future. If Democrats manage to flip the House and Senate, they could easily make the 8th district or the 13th district winnable by making it wrap around Raleigh instead of reaching out west to take in the homes of a pair of Republican incumbents. What are they describing? Gerrymandering. Yeah, that's what they're talking about. Gerrymandering, drawing the districts in a way to elect as many Democrats as possible. That's the point. And that's why you're seeing the reaction right now from the left about filling this seat on the U.S. Supreme Court. I mean, I understand it's also about abortion and all of that stuff. But for the strategists in the Democratic machine, this is about 
redistricting. This is about about how do you get back control of the legislative branch? And once you get control of the legislative branch, then you can start doing all the things that you want to do, like packing the courts and such, abolishing the Electoral College, right? These are the things they want to do, but how do you do them if you don't have the legislative branch? This is their dilemma. Well, uh, if you can use a pandemic in order to upend all of the election rules, right? And now you can take control of a general assembly, and now you get to redistrict, and now you get to redraw the lines to put yourself in power, and then you could do away with all of these institutions that were blocking you from governing the way things needed to be governed. You know, if only the people weren't so stupid, they would elect you, and then you could do all of these things that you're promising them. They're just so dumb, they don't understand all of the benefits that you are offering them. I know they're voting against their own interests. They do it all the time. It's so frustrating. This is how you end up with a piece by Rob Schofield. Well, that and he needs the uh, the donors. <clears throat> but uh, he writes at uh, NC Policy Watch. And he's got a, a piece out this week called The Time for Polite Dialogue with the Political Right is Over. I'm not sure when that ever began, actually. When has the, when has the, the debate uh, or the dialogue with the left, when has that been polite? Is it is it when they accuse the right of of wanting to kill people, of um, not liking people based on the color of their skin, being racist and sexist and, you know, pushing grandma off a cliff like that sort of stuff. That's the politeness that you're now going to abandon. Oh, no. Whatever shall we do? <laughs> this is such this is such an inside the Raleigh uh, kind of a piece. It should have been obvious to anyone paying attention as far back as the fall of 2000. So he's going back to uh, to Bush v. Gore, another election Democrats tried to steal. During these grim days, or those grim days, and weeks of raw and cynical political thievery that followed the Bush v. Gore presidential election, the modern extreme, win-at-all-costs American political right fully announced itself as a movement with no time for quaint niceties like fairness, precedent, and the rule of law. Like, you would think... Democrats didn't control the Senate up until about, what, six years ago, right? You would think Democrats didn't change the rules that now Republicans are going by. You would think Harry Reid never existed to this guy. (laughs) It was at that moment that progressives should have learned the lesson that all the rights talk of dialogue and civility was a mere ploy, a tactic to provide a distraction and a cloak of respectability, while the movement's media talking heads, think tank denizens, corporate-funded lobbyists, and elected office holders did whatever it took to rewrite the national political contract. I don't even know what a national political contract is. Do you? What is the national political contract? I didn't sign it. I'm not even aware of its existence. I am aware of the existence of Old Grouch's military surplus, however. Look, it's going to get cold, and you want to have the gear and the clothing uh, to prepare you for the elements. Military-grade thermal underwear comes in all sizes, from extra small to 3X. Wool sweaters, he's got military field jackets in solid green and camo. Wool and fleece toboggans, socks, Gore-Tex jackets. Old Grouch's military surplus has everything you need for the winter, whether you are working outside, whether you're going hunting. This is all heavy-duty, warm clothing. And you can get it for a lot cheaper than you find at most of the outdoor stores. 
Um, he also has emergency kits that you can put together for your car, like folding shovels, warm clothing, the space blankets, uh, emergency rations that won't spoil or be harmed by heat and cold. Um, also backpacks. These things are really cool. You can pick up some military grade backpacks for the kids because usually by now they've gone through, uh, gone through some of the crummier, you know, cheaper, um, uh, uh, sacks that you get from the, uh, big box stores. So pick up one of these military grade backpacks. All at Old Grouch's Military Surplus. Tons of real U.S. military surplus for more than three decades. Old Grouch's Military Surplus on Main Street in downtown Clyde. Shop is open Monday through Saturday. It's across the street from the anti-aircraft gun and at oldgrouch.com. So Rob Schofield at NC Policy Watch says that many caring and thinking progressives continue to naively fall for the right's supposed desire for a contest of ideas. <laughs> Do I love this idea. This really is hilarious to me. The idea that he thinks this is the common uh, mentality of the left. Do you, you think that you think your friends on the left believe that the right is interested in a dialogue with you and a and a contest of ideas? Okay. When respectable institutions convened confabs and retreats in which conservative extremists who spend most of their days dishing up red meat and fueling paranoid conspiracy theories to delusional audiences, audiences who are allowed to launder their rhetoric and feign responsibility. Progressives dutifully showed up, shook hands, and smiled. So what is he talking about here? It's obvious. That's why I say this is such an inside the Raleigh Beltway kind of a piece. It really is. Because he's talking about the John Locke Foundation, Civitas Institute, and I guess that's it. I'm not sure there are any other think tanks. This is who he's talking about. Talking about like guys like John Hood, Becky Gray, Andy Jackson, uh, Terry Stoops. He's talking about think tank people, conservatives, right, who have opinions, express them. They write about policy, and then uh, they and then they get invited to discuss policy. And what Schofield is advocating here is what deplatforming. It's cancel culture. That's what he's talking about doing. It's cancel culture. Now, at the end, he gets into the Marxist revolutionary LARPing, uh, where he says, if there's any fire left in the belly of the progressive movement, these incidents will serve as a final wake-up call, talking about Ruth Bader Ginsburg's uh, vacancy on the on the court. Uh, he says, it's a last clear signal that the time for polite and civilized dialogue with the right has become all but impossible. And he says, now is the time for caring and thinking people to fight like hell to save our country from those who would lie, cheat, and steal their way to power. Right back at you, buddy. Right back at you. If ever there is a, uh, a clear indication of the divide in America, right? Right there. Except, um, like, I'm not advocating that people go out there and, uh, and stop engaging in the discourse. I don't advocate that. I recognize that politics, like what we do here, the discussion of policy, this is the last step before violence. That's why you engage in the politics, is to prevent the violence. And you've got a lot of people on the left nowadays that are, I don't know, seemingly okay with abandoning the discourse and going to the violence. I'm not sure that's going to work out very well for anybody but specifically for a lot of the people that have not done any training whatsoever in firearms. I'm just saying, like, honestly, and like the people who like are trained in military tactics, that sort of stuff, law enforcement. I'm not, I'm not so sure that they're going to be on board with the, uh, the overthrow of the constitutional norms, just for what it's worth, just throwing it out there. Um, 
All right, what else is going on? Governor Roy Cooper, speaking of norms, plans to allow fans at Bank of America Stadium in Charlotte and other outdoor entertainment venues. At the end of next week, the current executive order is set to expire on October the 2nd. Today we are announcing that because of our continued stability, we plan to take another step toward phase three in the coming days if our progress holds. That step will mean larger outdoor event venues will be able to open at 7% capacity starting next Friday, October the 2nd. We share this news today so those outdoor venues with seating capacity of more than 10,000 can begin preparations that are key to safely reopening their doors to have a limited amount of socially distanced fans. We'll continue analyzing our data and indicators as we determine how to move forward safely in other areas that may be included in the new order on October the 2nd. In it, we hope to ease some other restrictions while keeping in place safety protocols like masks and social distancing. All right, so bars, they're still closed. Pool halls, theaters, still closed. The obvious question, at least to me here, is why 7%? Why are you limiting the capacity at 7%? Why not 8%? Why not 6 Why not 6.5%? Why not 90 Like, why 7 Why does this only apply to venues of 10,000 seats or more? So, like, what about a stadium like Asheville's McCormick Field that holds 4,000? So the Asheville Taurus baseball team, you know, sorry, out of luck, you got 4,000 seats. But why couldn't it open with a 7% cap? I mean, 7% of 4,000 will represent fewer people in a venue that's outside than 7% of 10,000 people. Now, it's going to be a larger venue, obviously, Right, a, f- a football stadium is bigger than the minor league baseball stadium, but the number of people is going to be way more. Right, the capacity percentage, right, that's the important thing. So why seven percent? Kudos to Don Vaughn from the News and Observer who asked part of this question, which was why restrict this to venues larger than ten thousand seats. So on the outdoor events, we wanted to make sure that we're talking about large outdoor arenas yeah we're all clear about that where there would be plenty of space for social distancing yeah and looking at sizes of stadiums across the state yeah uh, the ten thousand number was determined to be a good number okay so this is targeted only to football stadiums that's what this is that's what this announcement was Football stadiums, 10,000 seats or more, you get to reopen. Like, that's what it sounds like to me. Uh, The 7% capacity leaves plenty of room for social distancing. But so would 6%, and so would 8%. So why 7 he doesn't say. But not just that. We think it's really important for these arenas to have separate entrances, to not have places where people can congregate, to make sure that only families or people who live in the same household sit together and that there is significant social distancing and mask wearing. And I know that uh, the Department of Health and Human Services has had numerous conversations with colleges, with professional sports teams and others who would be wanting to open their doors to have 7% of capacity of fans in in the coming weeks. 
Um, we do believe that outdoor events are safer than, than indoor events, and therefore that's why we're concentrating in that lane. So to recap, we chose 10,000-seat arenas because we thought that would be a good size. And the 7%, it's the same proportion no matter the size of the venue. It's always going to be 7% of the capacity, but we can't tell you why 7% is the number that we chose, but that we chose it. Don Vaughn also asks uh, whether Health and Human Services Secretary Mandy Cohen, uh, whether uh, they've been able to use contact tracing to link any cases or outbreaks to large events yet. Thanks. As we look at our trends across the state, obviously we've held mass gatherings to be at a low level, so we haven't been seeing those large gatherings, which is a good thing. I think that has been protective for our state. We are seeing our our level of virus spread be lower. Um, We still have a lot of work to do. I would say when I look across our state, the particular parts of our state that we are looking at and paying attention to are the northeast parts of, of North Carolina, as well as now the Sandhills region and a couple of the counties on the South Carolina border. And what we're noticing is that it, it isn't necessarily any one thing that is driving um, the in- infections. Sometimes it can be related to a religious gathering or a family event or um, spread within the, your own household. Um, So I think it's really important for us all to remember about wearing masks when you're with anyone who is outside of your family unit and you you share a roof with. Um, Even if it's your extended family, even it's when when you're at Um, when you're at church, we want to make sure that folks are wearing a mask and saying social distancing in all of those settings. Um, We know that any time that you can be close together, particularly if you're indoors, those can be high-risk settings. So we encourage everyone to take precautions um, that we've been talking about over and over. And I'd encourage you to download the Slow COVID NC app, because if you are in a setting like a larger venue, it is really hard to do contact tracing. We don't necessarily know who's been next to who, but this app could be very helpful. So download the Co- Slow COVID NC app for free right now as another tool to help us slow the spread. Thanks. Okay, so the spread is lower. We're looking at some regions. There's not one thing driving infections. Do the three W's. Indoors are riskier than outdoors. Download the app. Not answered the question, which was, do you have any links to any cases or outbreaks from any large events? Not answered. I suspect the answer would be no, I guess, but I can only guess. Here's something you don't have to guess about. Uh, General Equipment Rental now voted best equipment rental store for the second straight year in the Mountain Express Reader's Poll. Uh, So you can't buy that kind of support. General Equipment Rental. Fall is here. You know you're going to need yard equipment to do battle. And right now you can take advantage of the big savings at the Husqvarna Fall Sale at General Equipment Rental. They are, uh, a reminder, you know, they are your official licensed Husqvarna and Honda outdoor power equipment sales and service provider. So they got great deals right now on gas-powered and battery-powered Husqvarna uh, equipment. Go to GeneralRents.com. Check out the chainsaws, trimmers, saws, blowers, lawnmowers. Um, they've got all kinds of equipments for any kind of property, any kind of job. Uh, maybe you need something bigger like uh, a riding mower or a stand-on mower, one of the pro-grade stand-on mowers. Um, go to generalrents.com and take a look at the uh, all of the items. You can also go there to get pre-qualified for 0% APR for 48 months. 
Yeah, that's true. 48 months. You can also learn about commercial fleet discounts. General Equipment Rental in Weaverville at the intersection of Merriman Avenue and Reams Creek Road. Family owned and operated for three generations. General Equipment Rental in Weaverville. GeneralRents.com. And think outside your toolbox. All right. Also at the uh, press briefing that Governor Cooper and Mandy Cohen gave yesterday, Roy Cooper was asked whether this announcement uh, ahead of the upcoming October 2nd announcement was in response to the pressure from the parents of college football players. He said that they expect the updated order will cover these venues, right, the the football stadiums. And so um, they needed time to print the tickets, plan the reopenings, you know, holding some sort of, you know, holding a football game is a very uh, labor-intensive and planning-intensive kind of a project. And so they needed advance notice. So that's why he made this announcement yesterday ahead of what is expected to be his latest executive order announcement uh, later this week, okay, in advance of the October 2nd uh, executive order, the, the the benchmark that he set, phase three, which we're not even in phase two yet, but I guess maybe we'll get to phase two, not sure. Uh, so why do it now? That's why he says, because, you know, look, it takes time. You got to plan these things, got to sell tickets, unlike theaters, for example, you know, movie theaters that have been shut down and maybe they get to reopen under, you know, safety protocols, but I guess they don't have to sell tickets. So it's way easier for them. So we can spring that on them later on in the week. Bars. Nah, they don't even have to worry about reopening. It's just turn on the lights and you're good to go. That's what I've heard. <laughs> it's just ridiculous. I would point out here, they still are not doing in-person press briefings. And at some point, maybe some folks in the media might question why we're taking advice on what businesses can reopen and at what capacities and how they can do so safely, right? That these The people that are making those types of decisions for our entire economy can't even figure out how to hold a press briefing safely. All right, that's a wrap for this episode. Please remember, subscribe to the podcast. Give it a positive review. I appreciate that. All of the links are in the description of the podcast. And thanks so much for your support. We'll talk to you later. Don't break anything while I'm gone. <laughs>